Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So there's a, a Pentagon briefing right now. Did you see this? That they... No. So basically saying that Russia hasn't advanced any further on Kiev because they're running out of food and fuel. And there it's are there are so genuinely signs. According, so I'd seen this like tweeted, but didn't know if it was real that there really are, um, or according to US, the US, uh, groups of Russian soldiers who are just surrendering. That's amazing. It's incredible. It, it, it is. It's wild. Yeah. I mean, we may wake up tomorrow and seem like total idiots. There's <laughs> because, no way to know. Knows, there's no way to know. happened last week. <laughs> so I don't know if I want to do that two weeks in a row. It's fine. You know, there's, <laughs> no, like, there's no way to know. I mean, did you see there's a video of Ukrainians basically advancing on a line of tanks, like Tiananmen style? Um, yeah. And the tanks oh, back up. Crazy. Because like, presu- I mean, like the 17-year-old who's driving the tank doesn't want to fire on his cousin. This is literally like, it's not even like, you know, us invading Canada or vice yeah, versa, no. right? This is like Virginia invading Maryland. Yeah, it's I think crazy. that's exactly right. Yeah. New York invading New Jersey. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, which, which will happen one day, but I'm sure. <laughs> it, but already it's just crazy. it already did. If you drive from New Jersey into New York, there's a marker that shows where the- um, That's where right. The was off. Yeah. Touche, touche. Okay. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Welcome to Rational Security 2.0. I am your co-host, Scott R. Anderson, uh, here with my two other co-hosts, Quinta Jurassic. Hello. And Alan Rosenstein. Hello, hello. And we are here by virtue of some technical and travel logistics mishaps with just ourselves uh, here for what we are calling a War in Ukraine Special Edition. We, in discussing what we're going to do this week, realize we have been entirely consumed by events in Ukraine and relating to Ukraine over the past week uh, in what has truly been a historical, uh, not necessarily in a good way, almost certainly not in a good way, week in world history. And so for that reason, we have decided we're going to try and spend this week going through different aspects of this conflict and what it might mean uh, and committing all three topics to it. This is probably going to be a little less lighthearted than most of our topics because these are all various serious things that we're talking about uh, that are impacting real people in the world. And that's often true of a lot of topics we deal with. But this one just felt like we were, were not quite uh, in the position to make it quite as a lighthearted an approach, but that these topics were still ones we wanted to spend time talking about and thinking about with you all. So without further ado, our our three topics we're going to talk about this week are first, in the streets of Kiev. Over the past week, Ukraine's fierce resistance has successfully stymied Russian efforts to remove its government. How do the Ukrainians pull this off and what does it tell us about the next stage of the conflict? Topic two, on the global stage, while Ukrainians fight the Russian military in the streets, Western nations and their allies have provided them with arms and support while imposing an unprecedented array of sanctions against Russia's economy. Can these efforts turn the tide in the war and what other consequences might they have? And topic three, 
On the home front, while Americans have overwhelmingly rallied in support of Ukraine, even mainstream Republicans have continued to use the crisis to score points against the Biden administration. Meanwhile, the party's Trumpist wing has gone even further in at times complimenting Putin and defending, if not supporting, his actions. What impact will the Ukraine conflict have on our domestic political scene and vice versa? For our first topic on the ground in Ukraine, Alan, I'm going to hand it over to you. So the first thing that's worth, I think, noting is that we are recording this uh, in the late morning of Tuesday, March 1st. And given the speed at which the events are developing, uh, much may have changed by the time you are all listening to this uh, on Wednesday. Um, But as it stands now, um, the Russian invasion in Ukraine appears to be entering a second phase uh, after several days in which the Russian advance ended up being much slower than I think certainly the Russians and many international observers expected, uh, due in part to a much stiffer Ukrainian resistance, uh, as well as some logistical issues on the Russian side. The Russians appear to be starting a a new and more intense phase of fighting using their more traditional um, kind of artillery-based approach, uh, an approach that unfortunately will almost certainly result in even greater civilian casualties. Um, And The question is whether or not the Ukrainians that have put up such a stiff resistance can continue to do so. So I think the first question, and and Scott, I'm curious what what you think, is why is it that uh, the Russians seem to have miscalculated so badly in their initial phase of the war, and not just the Russians, but I think the international community in general, many of whom, including those who are very much uh, not on the Russian side, expected Kiev to fall within days, not hours, whereas now we see that really uh, uh, the the conflict that we're going to get is going to be a much slower, much grindier conflict. I mean, why why do you think so many people underestimated the Ukrainians and overestimated the Russians? It's a really good question. And it's something that we're going to see historians and military historians dig into, I think, in the weeks and months to come. I think the initial assessments, and I've been looking to a lot of experts on this because this is an area where I have any particular expertise, but the consensus seems to be that Russia went in with a battle plan that just made bad assumptions about the Ukrainian capabilities. The assumptions seem to be we're going to move really quickly on the capital, move quickly into the country with ground forces, didn't make much of an effort to take out Ukraine's uh, air force or air capabilities, or at least was not very successful in doing so. There's some questioning about the targeting, the Russia, how effective the targeting the Russians pursued was in, in where they did hit uh, airfields, and that the assumption was a few days military campaign, this would be end, re- end relatively quickly, move on Kiev, uh, try and get the Zelensky government to capitulate uh, relatively quickly because they are so overwhelmed in terms of the scale of force that Russians have aligned. And it looks like there wasn't even much of a battle plan put together in any way that was really meaningfully communicated down to the Russian troops, uh, a lot of whom were surprised to find themselves being ordered to march into Ukraine, possibly themselves having convinced that this was part of an elaborate diplomatic posture as opposed to uh, an actual implementing battle plan. You know, some of this might be miscommunication. I don't think we have 100% clarity, obviously, on what was happening within the Russian chain of communications. But I think it really does raise real questions about the efficiency in a conventional sense of, um, you know, the Russian conventional military, um, which hasn't done something like this in a couple of years for a while. And, you know, 
when the actions it's been most involved in, you think of things like Russian like participation in Syria, very different type of engagement than the sort of action we're seeing here. So, you know, I think part of that was miscalculation on the part of the Russians. The other part was uh, an underestimation of the Ukrainians. The Ukrainians have obviously spent time thinking about uh, and preparing themselves for this sort of conflict and have uh, an exceptional edge in morale uh, in that there appears to be pretty high levels of mobilization among Ukrainians to resist the Russian uh, intervention into the country in invasion. The, you know, it's really exceptional in that regard. I think an interesting historical question here is how much of this was anticipated? We know the Ukrainian, the Linsky government very consciously was until the day before the invasion trying to talk down the risk of a Russian invasion. But it doesn't appear that they were unprepared for one, at least not entirely, um, which I suspect is not a coincidence. I think there probably was some actual contingency planning, despite the public message otherwise, perhaps. Uh, Another question I have also is to what extent there is an element of involvement by outside powers. Um, You know, in these early stages, it looks like there's good... Ukrainians had good intelligence on where Russian troops were going to be, you know, where Russians may have been focusing their efforts. Almost certainly there's a degree of intelligence sharing. Um, I wouldn't be surprised to hear if there were, you know, intelligence assets and folks actually operating and helping the Ukrainians a little bit, not in any sort of direct involvement sort of way, but in exactly the sort of plausible deniability context that is the reason why states have intelligence agencies that have paramilitary capabilities. Uh, so I suspect there's some element of that that might be involved here. Now, maybe that's happening from Poland, not from actually on the ground in Ukraine, but there's some degree of communication coordination that's been happening and helping these first few days. question now is how effective can that be if we're entering a phase where Kiev is surrounded and cut off and under siege as our other major Ukrainian cities, at least in the east, and that's where the leadership is and a lot of the focus of the country. Um, it's a, I, I'm worried this conflict is entering a really dangerous new new phase that's going to look very different than this first week. And I think we all need to prepare ourselves for that. I think there are a couple different things in play here. So one is that I've been interested to see what seems to be an increasing consensus, although not universal, across people who study Russia, experts, um, and also the reports that are coming out from that are sourced to the U.S. intelligence community that Putin, for one reason or another, is not acting rationally here. Um, And what I mean by that is that obviously Russia under Putin has engaged in numerous conflicts in its near abroad over the years, but invading a extremely large country and, you know, the whole country, not just trying to bite off a little piece of it, is really a categorically different move. And there have been a lot of reports kind of hinting one way or the other that he's maybe not entirely there, potentially because of how isolated he's been. He's been in pretty strict isolation since COVID began for reasons that are frankly unclear. But, you know, you if you look at the televised meetings between him and his various ministers, they're all kind of huddled at one end of, of a table. The long tables we've been joking about have continued. Um, to, it's so long that I don't even know how they can hear him, frankly. The tables are mic'd. I did note it. I did oh, okay. note they're using well, there we go. So I think Whew, they actually they need them. <laughs> it's so that they can't, you know, pass notes at the other end. But I, I've been interested by the increasing suggestions sourced to the intelligence community that there's something that is not 100% right there. And so that's one factor. I think invading Ukraine under any circumstances would ha- would be not particularly in tune with Putin's sort of modus operandi and suggesting of something that is 
a little bit wrong. But the other point, um, and I'm indebted to military analysts on Twitter for this in particular, um, Michael Kaufman, who's been doing really incredible analysis of the Russian military sort of in real time on Twitter, is that it just seems like the Russian military hasn't prepared very well. So granted, it seems like they're not using their air force to the extent that they could be. I think that's probably because they wanted to avoid the really devastating civilian casualties that we saw in previous Russian military engagements um, in Grozny, for example, in the Second Chechen War. But it's also true that so currently there is a I think I've seen 40 mile long line of tanks advancing on Kiev. And just before we sat down to record, there was a U.S. intelligence official who was quoted in various outlets as saying that they're not only running out of fuel, they're running out of food. It just it really seems like the Russian government, or at least Putin, planned this war without giving the military that much of a heads up about what was going to happen, what they were going to need to prepare. Maybe that can kind of make sense if you're Putin and you're thinking, oh, the Ukrainians, they'll, you know, they'll welcome us as liberators. It's not a real country. Uh, we'll get into Kiev and get out within 48 hours and it'll be fine. But now, as the fighting has, I think, entered a sixth or seventh day, you can really start seeing these sort of logistical failures pile up. And so I'm definitely with Scott here. I worry that the next step is sort of indiscriminate Russian targeting of civilians in the way that we've seen their military engage in the past. Yeah. So let, let's let's talk about that. I mean, is there any reason to think that there's some, from Putin's perspective and given his incentives, that there's any alternative to this second phase, right, of, of a broader, more indiscriminate war of attrition that will end up not just in the ultimate defeat of Ukraine, but in the formation of a, after the dust has settled, as it were, of understandably incredibly bitter Ukrainian insurgency that will then uh, lead to even more violence. I mean, are, are we at the point where we are now stuck in, you know, unless some diplomatic solution comes up, which is a, you know, possible, but right now it doesn't seem super likely in, in a situation where, where the end game is, a, you know, the sort of grueling land war um, that, again, you know, Europe hasn't seen literally since World War II. I think that's I think that is kind of the only direction to go if Russia is going to pursue a military victory or military end to this campaign. You know, at this point, the fight seems to be being brought to major cities. Uh, and these are cities in which the Ukrainians are very dug in. They have extensive bunkers actually dating back to even the Soviet era and the subways, at least in Kiev. And like, you know, are in this moment where you only can actually knock them out if they don't capitulate and the Russians don't capitulate uh, one way or the other, then the military has to fight has to be brought to the cities. And the Russians, they can either march troops through the cities, probably take heavy casualties, it's going to be a very big slog, or they can bring a lot of artillery to bear and missiles to bear and level the cities. And, you know, I don't think they are going to level the cities to the same degree, uh, at least very quickly as happened with Grozny, as happened in other conflicts. You know, maybe eventually we'll get there. They're going to try and you know, escalate and escalate and use that to bring additional pressure on the Ukrainians, hoping to eventually force a surrender or some combination of marching some troops into some areas and bombing other areas. But it's going to be brutal and ugly. And the problem with with the inefficiency of the Russian military, which I think is very real, is that those are all things that the Russians can correct. You know, the Russians have a ton of resources to throw against this conflict. They have supply lines that, while appear to be failing them right now, like 
ultimately seem pretty securable, right? They've they've got like a direct line to Russian and Belarusian borders. And so I don't think there's much reason to think that they're not going to be able to correct a lot of the problems they've encountered in this campaign so far. Um, Maybe that won't be enough to like get them into Kiev and take it, you know, quickly. Um, And so it'll be, that's the question is like, it's going to be this war of attrition, but they have a lot of ways to raise, a lot more ways to raise pressure on the Ukrainians. The Ukrainians have to raise pressure on them as this conflict proceeds. And that's, that's a dangerous situation to be in. I mean, Alan, I'm also curious what what you think here, but I'll, I'll weigh in first. I mean, what has confused me from the beginning about this war is that the most aggressive move that I had thought would make sense for Putin was a sort of full-scale military occupation of the Donbass and an effort to either annex it or cement Russian control over the two republics that are quote-unquote republics that are now uh, recognized by Russia, Donetsk and Luhansk. And so if Putin wanted a off-ramp, you could certainly see a way to make one, right? So the two sides had uh, engaged in talks along the Ukrainian-Belarusian border. They're planning, I think, to engage in further talks at some point soon along the Ukrainian-Polish border. And, you know, if you if Putin were acting rationally, you could say, OK, we don't want to be bogged down in a kind of a nightmarish urban warfare in Kiev. We don't want to flatten cities because this is already unbelievably unpopular, it seems, among the Russian populace. And we don't want it to get even worse because as unfortunate as it is, I think Grozny is, you know, a long way from the mind of many Russians, whereas Kiev is like a place you go for vacation and where your cousin's mom lives. It's very, very near sort of culturally. So maybe, you know, best case scenario, you end up with a situation where Ukraine can say, you know, our plucky boys fought, pushed off the Russians, will agree to, you know, neutrality for a certain amount of years. And meanwhile, Putin gets the Donbass and then Putin can say, you know, great news, everybody. Uh, we said at the beginning that this was an operation to, the, to secure the Donbass. <laughs> we secure the Donbass. Let's go home. And obviously, that's a, a loss for Ukraine in the big picture, but it ends the fighting and it prevents more people from dying, which I think precisely, Scott, as you say, because the Russian military is just bigger and they have more resources is really, I think, should be at top of mind right now. The problem is that it's not clear to me that Putin wants that off ramp. And my worry is that... We can talk about this in the next section when we talk about the sanctions from abroad is that, you know, the longer this drags on, the more incentive he has to really clamp down and dig in and not back down. And that is deeply, deeply concerning because you can give him as many off ramps as you want, but he has to want to take them. I will agree with that. The one thing I will say that I think is a a glimmer of a silver lining or a glimmer of, I don't want to say hope, but like a a direction that there may be more openness to an off-ramp, at least at a certain point, is that the demands that isolated Luhansk and Donetsk as saying recognition of them is one of the four demands the Russian government has come forward is actually from Russian statements. And from Lavrov, I believe, was one of the first people who articulated them, meaning from a fairly high level that actually has some 
communication with Putin. Um, the conditions were recognition of Crimea as part of Russia, recognition of Donetsk and Luhansk as independent republics, repudiation of joining NATO, and then rejection of accepting arms and security assistance from the West. There have we seen slightly different formulations of that. Those were the big conditions. The fact that the Russians would spell that out, I think, is interesting. It kind of feeds back to some of our discussion about why they would recognize Donetsk and Luhansk in the first place before going into this invasion. You know, there's an idea, Fiona Hill hit on this in a really interesting interview that I encourage people to read in Politico just uh, today or yesterday, where that the part of the likely strategy here for the Russians might be something like the balkanization of Ukraine, breaking it up into different parts so that none are really a counterweight, recognizing that maybe you can't get all of the country under the Russian sphere of influence, but you can take some of it and the other parts you can forcibly neutralize. And then the remainder, you know, live in the parts in the far west close to the Polish border, like so be it. You know, that's that's not really the heart of the country. And so that might pre- present something of an off-ramp and the Russians appear to have laid the track for it. But, you know, that doesn't mean they're ready to walk down it anytime soon. But I do think it's a it's a good sign, at least, that they are recognizing the possibility of seeing, well, here's what an off-ramp might need to look like. So uh, we'll see where that goes. Quinta, just, just to respond to, to your point, you know, you asked what my, my thoughts are on this. And, and it, it does seem to me that where this is headed is a brutal kind of siege-based war that will kill thousands, if not tens of thousands of civilians as well as soldiers on both sides. And, you know, I, I, I think I'm just thinking sort of what an awful choice this must present to the Ukrainians, to Ukrainian President Zelensky, because on the one hand, the Ukrainian resistance has been, I mean, inspiring, I think, you know, for you know, both in Ukraine and, and in the West. On the other hand, of course, the more the Ukrainians resist, the more brutal pressure that Russia will bring to bear, and the more civilian deaths that will uh, that will result. Right, the same calculation goes for you know what would happen, what could happen if there is a, a you know full scale Ukrainian defeat. Right, you know on the one hand, I think a Ukrainian insurgency would be something that many in the West would find understandable and supportable, and again quite heroic, right, resisting the the Russian uh, occupation. But another thing that will cause an enormous number of civilian uh, deaths. And so th- there's this kind of terrible trap uh, here, and, and it's really not clear how, how this ends. Um, it, it does seem to me that a combination of just the fact of Russian invasion of Ukraine and also just how badly Russia handled it in the first few days and how many kind of victories it allowed Ukraine um, has created a level of morale and resistance uh, in the Ukrainians that's going to be very, very hard to shake. I mean, the Ukrainians, I think, have proven to the Russians, to the world and to themselves that they can effectively and quite meaningfully resist Russian force and Russian occupation. And so I don't, you know, it seems like if the Ukrainian morale was going to break, if the army was going to collapse, if Zelensky was going to flee, that would have all happened. And so, you know, whatever goes forward next, I don't see a world in which either the Russians, either Putin chooses an off-ramp, but really the Ukrainians choose an off-ramp because an off-ramp would be the as far as I can tell, the end of Ukraine, um, something that the Ukrainians seem uh, understandably quite reticent to do. Can I just make one one point here? And this is my, you know, a, a point that I think is, is really tragic is that Kiev is a terrible place for the Ukrainians to have to make a last stand. It's, you know, relatively close to the Belarusian border. It is like further to the east. They have other holdings far to the west of Ukraine. And, you know, it's understandable for a cultural reason, for historical reasons, I think for national identity reasons, why that's, you know, the seat of government, the historical capital a city that has like a real historical and cultural weight is you wouldn't want to give that up easily. I think that was never going to happen, but 
you know, it does worry me that there is so much hinging on the status of Kiev and that if it falls or if it is put under a siege, you know, even though the rest of the country is not lost, even though there is still a whole third or half of Ukraine to the West that Russians haven't really advanced into and, and haven't really shown much signs of like trying to advance into by my understanding, like they're really focused on, you know, Kiev places to the east, that that's going to be seen as a major loss. Um, maybe that's unavoidable, but I, I, you know, hope that that's a framing that the con- that that the Ukrainians and others advising Ukrainians are thinking about to say that like this war doesn't end with Kiev, but uh, but I'm not sure. I think that's kind of the way a lot of people are beginning to see it. I mean, I know I, I think I think you're right, Scott. Both in the unfortunate nature of Kiev's geographic situation and also in the kind of unavoidability of making a, a big stand in Kiev. I mean, I have to assume that the Ukrainians have contingency plans in place and that they are beefing up both their military assets and their kind of command and control and kind of political assets in, in Lviv, which is the main Western city, sort of very close to Poland, given that they seemed fairly well prepared, at least in certain respects, for the Russian invasion. I mean, I have to assume there's a plan B somewhere, right, that says everyone go to Lviv. Um, you know, hopefully that plan B includes getting Zelensky out, uh, especially given how I think, key Zelensky has been both internally for Ukrainian morale and also maybe even more importantly um, in rallying support uh, internationally. And, you know, we were joking uh, or we were talking a little bit at the beginning of the show about, you know, Zelensky's comedic career. It's, it's you know, it's just amazing, right? The, the um, you know, the transformation that 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 he has has made and, you know, really speaks to the fact that some people have greatness thrust upon them, right? And you kind of never know who will, who will step up and, and be that great leader. You know, as to the question of of keeping Kiev, I mean, there are obviously historical parallels here, right? I mean, Berlin was a pretty terrible place for the West to try to hold on to uh, during the Cold War, given its its location, uh, you know, uh, in Germany. Um, and yet, you know, they the West decided um, that it was an important place to to you know keep West Berlin and to do what it took. So, yeah, again, maybe from a kind of pure cost benefit analysis, it's. Uh, you know, keeping Kiev doesn't make a lot of sense, but um, uh, understandable why they're uh, so committed to do so. So I think that note on Zelensky is actually a, a good transition to our next topic. There is a really striking report in the Washington Post about Zelensky's speech to a number of EU leaders where he basically made a plea for help to Ukraine and apparently closed by saying, you know, this may be the last time that you see me alive, which according to the Post is actually, you know, that sort of emotional appeal may be behind a lot of Europe's sort of overwhelming response to the Russian invasion. So which I think speaks both to the sort of power of Zelensky's presence and and rhetoric, but also to how unexpected (laughs) the European response has been. So let's let's talk about that a little bit. So the U.S. and EU have been working together and and other countries in the West. Um, really, I think, Scott, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think shockingly hand in glove here to really wallop Russia with a package of pretty astonishing sanctions. Scott, I will leave the specifics to, to you, but Putin, uh, Lavrov, others in the Russian government have been sanctioned personally. I think that the most extreme sanctions are the sanctions on the Russian central bank, the Bank of Russia, which can potentially cause a huge problem for Russia by freezing an enormous amount of its kind of $600 billion war chest outside the country. So it's no longer available. As a result of this and other sanctions, the ruble has crashed. I think Russia actually blocked the opening of its main stock market until next week, I'm guessing in an 
effort to stave off further collapse. There have also been, you know, transport of military equipment, all kinds of things across the borders of the West into Ukraine. We've seen some indication that maybe Western leaders are getting a little out over their skis. There was some conversation last night, so that's Monday night, about whether or not uh, Europe would provide Ukraine with planes uh, that could potentially be moved from Poland into Ukraine. As of this morning, it seems like that is not going to take place. Um, I mean, I think that the the reason probably, or m- many of the reasons why Europe is being careful here is, of course, however horrible the invasion of Ukraine is, and it's very horrible, we really, really don't want a nuclear exchange with Russia. And a, a free Ukraine is not going to be very much good for anyone if it's buried under a heap of smoking radioactive ash. So all that, I think, points to the really difficult line that uh, Europe and the West are trying to walk here. And honestly, the main question in my mind is where this ends. If Putin is dug in, uh, as he seems to be, Uh, And this is sort of further fueling his kind of, frankly, paranoid anti-Western rhetoric, this idea that everyone is out to get Russia. I certainly am sympathetic to the purpose of the sanctions, but I worry that, you know, a crashing ruble makes Putin feel like he has to crack down even more in order to hang on. And so I worry that you, you sort of end up driving him further into a corner. So I'll put that question to, to both of you, but Scott, I'm also curious for, for your rundown of sort of what you make of the sanctions package. Sure. Starting with the sanctions, I think, is a good place to start because that is actually the most dramatic thing these countries have done. And it's really, I can't underscore this enough. Like what the United States and its allies have done is a norm breaking action that is specifically intended to respond to Russia in a shocking way. Freezing central bank assets, blocking them at this scale for a major G20 economy is something that nobody's ever done before, even for far smaller economies. Instead, it is really a sudden action that blows any sort of other sanctions out of the water. Designating Putin and Lavrov individually, no one should care. Like that's a very symbolically significant thing, but it's like it gets a lot of press. But like they probably have plenty, most of their assets moved or hidden and taken places. They saw this coming. They're going to lose some lose some mega yachts. They probably knew that was going to happen anyway. Uh, so there's all these kind of blocking sanctions put up, freezing assets for all these Russian elites and Russian institutions and banks. Those are significant, but not huge because a lot of the assets that they have are probably beyond the reach of the United States and its allies in Russia uh, or in a handful of other countries that that aren't going to play along with this, those sanctions. Then you cut them off to the debt markets. They have frozen any sort of dealing with debt instruments for Russians and for a lot of major Russian state-owned enterprises. That's actually a very big deal because it means that none of those enterprises, and we're talking about rail lines, shipping companies, resource extraction, all sorts of defense industry, none of them can get financing for any sort of action they're going to get. These companies all rely upon external financing um, in the same way that most businesses do to get the capital you need to to do things. And they're not going to be able to do that very effectively now. They're even shutting down, again, the secondary market, the ability to like trade any of these things. They're basically punishing people who have ever chosen to invest in these Russian instruments, right? And then the central bank assets on top of that just means that Russia is not going to be able to do anything to stabilize its economy or stabilize its currency. It is a nuclear option. And we pulled it in four days. The reason we did this is because they're trying to match the, the Julia Friedlander said this in an episode of Lawfare podcast. I said yesterday, so I want to give her credit because I think it's the best way to describe what's happening. They tried to take the time frame of an economic sanctions you know, action, a, an effort to target the economy, which usually has to play out over several weeks and months because that's how long it takes for 
efforts to ratchet up be implemented carefully and for the effects to be felt so that people really feel the pressure. They're trying to condense all that to the time frame of the actual armed conflict happening on the ground in Ukraine, where again, people thought Kiev was going to fall in two days. And so they are coming out with the biggest, strongest reaction they possibly can in an effort to shock Russia into some sort of change in response. We don't know what these sanctions are going to do. They're going to drop the bottom out of the Russian economy. That's almost certainly true. What we don't know is what does that do to the rest of the world? Again, it's the 11th largest economy in the world. It could have really, really big economic ramifications. Now, the United States might be able to ratchet back some of these sanctions from these other ways. I think they've done the math, the dumb calculations. Russia has actually like tried to sanction-proof itself in a lot of ways over the last few years. That actually... I kind of ironically means that the outward ripple effects of it collapsing actually are somewhat more limited too, but not entirely. And so it's a it's a really risky move. I understand it strategically. I'm not sure I even disagree with it. Again, a lot of it is about trying to hit the shock factor and shock the Russians into saying, this is a, going to be incredibly costly to you and you all need to reconsider now. But who knows if it's going to have that effect or not yet. And particularly on Putin, like uh, the focus now is on Putin and his decision making. He's not going to be the person feeling this effect. And then the question is, well, what are the feedback cycles that get to Russia other than Putin? Yeah, are there any? Are the generals going to view things differently? Are we, in the end, you know, at some point you start thinking about a coup or regime change. And that begins to see the only real vehicle that if Putin is really dug in, that Russia begins to change its position on this stuff. That's a really dangerous calculus to start playing with in this area. So I think it just underscores what a dangerous moment we're living in right now. I, I think that is the calculus. I mean, I, I think, and you know, to your point and, and to Quinta's question about this is clearly a, a powerful and probably effective tactic, but what is the strategy behind it? I think it it, it has to be regi- regime change. I think that's the only possibility, right? There's a whole interesting subfield in political science, right, which studies autocracies and dictatorships. Uh, and the kind of key finding is there's no such thing as a, an actual dictatorship. Or there is no such thing as one person is in charge because you can't run a country that way, right? You can't run an organization that way. The way dictatorships and autocracies work is always that the leader in charge has a bunch of deals with sub-leaders who have deals with sub-sub-leaders, right? In a kind of feudal European arrangement. Um, and so a, a system that can look incredibly centralized um, ultimately relies on key second and third order players. Uh, and these are the ones you know, the oligarchs, uh, you know, the, the, the high-level political leaders who have used their position to amass great riches and have, you know, stashed them around the, around the world. These are the ones who are going to be, in the first instance, most harmed by this. And so, um, you know, th- there is a point at which these sanctions become so intense that I think the only explanation can be, or the only kind of expected result can be, uh, that they are designed to motivate either an actual coup uh, or all but a coup, sort of a, a a united stance from Putin's subordinates to him that he has to stop because at this point his actions are now endangering not just you know peace in Europe. Who cares about that? They're actually endangering the the economic viability of the of the oligarchs. And I think the problem there is um, how does Putin react? To, to that, right? You know, one way he, he might say is, okay, you know, I played my hand poorly. I'm done. You know, I'm going to go retire to my dacha. Uh, the other is a sort of a full-on escalation um, and a, a madman theory approach. And we just have no idea what the answer is. And so, again, none of this is to say that the response 
is not the correct response, all else being equal. None of this is to take away from the kind of amazing diplomacy that has gone on here. Um, and I think it's probably worth uh, giving a lot of credit and not just to the Europeans who are finally stepping up, but to the kind of the Biden administration who have done just an amazing job, it seems, both pushing the Europeans, but also letting them kind of take credit for a lot of this. I mean, it's a real masterclass in, in how you do diplomacy and sort of where you want to take credit, where you don't want to take credit. So all of this might be might be the right answer. But I do think it shows, and I'm going to use this opportunity to plug a, a book review that that's uh, coming out today on, on the site, uh, uh, a history of, of international uh, economic sanctions, that the line between military force and economic force Although, you know, conceptually, it's quite clear, right? One uses uh, guns, the other uh, uses uh, dollars. In actual fact, is is much less clear. And so if Putin is fuming inside the Kremlin because he views what the West and Europe and America have done economically as an act of war, he's not entirely wrong. Now, you know, I don't feel bad for him. He's kind of, he, he has brought this on himself. But uh, to, to Scott's point, um, this is about as close as you can get to armed conflict uh, using you know, dollars and euros. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I worry about this as well, and in large part because, you know, we've known for a while, I think, that Putin is worried about the West attempting regime change in Russia. That seems to have been at least part of what the Kremlin was thinking in organizing election interference in the U.S. in 2016 as kind of a, a payback to Hillary Clinton for what the Kremlin perceived as her meddling in the 2011 uh, organic protests that took place in Moscow. And so I do worry that using the language of regime change, thinking about sanctions in terms of regime change, just further puts Putin in a place where he feels like the only move that he has is to crack down harder in order to retain control, which is not good for Ukrainians. And also it's worth saying not good for Russians. There, you know, a lot of the people whose savings are going to be wiped out here um, and who are going to be stuck in Russia without being able to leave because they have no savings, because they can't travel, are ordinary people. And there's an enormous amount of indication that this war is tremendously unpopular in Russia. So I, I really do worry about that. I mean, we've seen already that sort of Western powers have started to limit access to Russian state-funded media like RT and Sputnik outside Russia in Europe. 
my concern there is that, you know, we're going to end up in a tit for tat and Roskomnadzor, the Russian censor, is going to end up censoring, you know, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, WhatsApp, and then you end up with even less ability for Russians inside the country to be able to communicate with one another. So I, I'm, you know, with both of you, I don't know what the right answer is here. I will note that um, Dan Dresner at Tufts, along with some other folks, have been writing that the right way to sort of think about and present these sanctions to Russia is they're a pressure tactic. And if Russia, you know, pulls back from Ukraine, the sanctions will also be dialed back. Scott, I, I don't know if you think that's feasible or a good idea, but I did read that and, and wonder if that is kind of the wiser way to go here. I think that's that's a really good point. For the sanctions package, the question now is what are the routes to de-escalation? Because there's two scenarios where we may need to see a de-escalation of these sanctions. One is that the Russians are willing to compromise on something, to take some step that we would like them to take, big or small, and we need to find ways to loosen that up. Uh, maybe some Russians and maybe just certain oligarchs who are willing to take a stand against Putin and come out against it. Maybe we want to give them reason to pursue that sort of behavior, or maybe it's the country as a whole. Uh, and the other situation we may need to de-escalate is if it does have these ripple effects that really hit the global economy in ways we didn't fully expect, and that we need to hedge against that. Now, they've already, it's worth noting, have really hedged against that in energy markets. Uh, energy is the number one way that Russia kind of hit the global economy. And so there are exceptions throughout all these sanctions regimes for all sorts of energy trade. So Europe's still buying its energy from Russia. Russia's still going to get income from that. None of these sanctions stop that. And so that's kind of like the biggest hedge against the global effects there. And there's wiggle room in that for permitting more or less transactions that I think they will, governments will continue to play with. But otherwise, there is a, some need to lay out some sort of, I sympathize with the need to lay out some sort of conditionality. I, I don't know how much of that can be that sort of one for one, because we don't know exactly where the Russians' room is. I mean, sometimes in diplomacy, it's not quite like you're dealing with, you know, a, a, a child I saw as a metaphor somebody was using on Twitter where you're saying, if you do this, I'm going to give you this one for one. Those sorts of discussions happen, but there's inherently a lot of calibrating that goes back between the two sides. I think importantly is that there has to be at least an, an indication that there's an openness to rolling back some of these things for levels of action that Russia may take. The problem is that, that that Russia's threshold for what it's willing to take is just very low, and our threshold for what it would take to actually roll these back in a significant way, and it has to be significant for Russia to really feel, you know, alleviated pressure, maybe very, very high, at least right now. Over time, that'll change, but for the West, you know, over time is where they're going to feel the bite in Russia. These sanctions really begin to have their effects this week and next week and the week after, and so they have an incentive to say, well, we're going to let them sit where they are because that's Russia's the pressure is just going to build on Russia the longer we wait. So, uh, you know, I think that's the reason why this isn't a priority for them yet. They know that this is a multi-week strategy. They're trying to scare the Russians now, bring them to the table. And then as time goes on, they'll see what the actual bite is, what the knock-on effects are. And then they can start talking about, okay, well, how do we calibrate this more effectively on the back end? Um, but it is a risky strategy. But again, it's it's about trying to force Russia into that dangerous situation, shock them, and compel them to really do something that changes their decision-making in a time when they'll make a difference on the ground in Ukraine. Alan, I know you want to get in here. I think we should talk a little bit about the Europeans, because uh, there's some really interesting things happening in Europe, but go ahead and, and hop in on this, and maybe we can turn to that next. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the one thing I want to say about the need for an off-ramp is, is to kind of put in perspective the fact that Putin has lost, right? Actually, any way this ends 
from a geostrategic perspective, Putin has lost. Now, Ukraine might also have lost too, right, which is a tragedy, but that's a different issue here. What Putin's clear geostrategic aim here, um, which is to make Russia a great power, to, you know, stop the spread of NATO, to continue Western Europe's dependence on Russian energy. I mean, in a matter of days, you know, he has fatally harmed his own country's geostrategic interests, right? And, and this gets to, to the amazing changes we've seen uh, in Europe, right? NATO is as uh, you know, NATO is as strong as it's frankly ever been. Probably even uh, you know we should talk about you know the domestic U.S. Uh, situation and and Trump and the right. But I mean, you know, Trump's blathering about getting rid of NATO is going to be that much harder to do. You, know, you have nations that are not part of NATO that have resisted joining NATO, like Finland and Sweden, right? They're uh, potentially quite interested in joining NATO. You have Germany, uh, which announced a huge increase in defense spending, right? Um, the German chancellor announced that Germany is going to increase its spending above the 2% GDP uh, NATO uh, target. And given how big of an economy uh, Germany is, that's a, a very large uh, uh, increase. And he wants to put that on the German constitution to keep that level of defense spending. Oh, and, and not 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 to mention the fact that it seems pretty clear now that Germany is going to have to move towards some sort of energy, either independence or at least independence from Russia. Right? I would not be surprised if Germany you know, revisits its its in retrospect disastrous decision to abandon nuclear energy, uh, given that the result is uh, again dependence on Russia. So, you know, in that sense, it's important thing to recognize that that Putin has already fundamentally lost in this regard. I think that's important because you know I think there's a there's a temptation, understandably, to say that, you know, the sanctions and the the off-ramp is unavailable until, you know, Putin, quote unquote, learns his lesson until he makes right what has happened. But I don't think that's realistic, you know, given Putin's own domestic interests and you know, given Russia's still quite formidable power. And so I think it's important to recognize, you know, just how, I mean, it's horrible. I mean, I don't want to put it quite this way, not so much that the West has benefited from this, but that the West will leave this conflict in a much stronger position relative to Russia um, than it started, uh, even if, you know, this ends uh, with Russian control over the breakaway territories, even if this ends with Russian control over Ukraine, which would, of course, be a tragedy for the Ukrainian people, but would not fundamentally change the fact that Russia comes out of this much weaker than, than it entered. I think that's basically right. And the question you have to ask yourself, what is it? that Russia and particular Vladimir Putin values more, you know, an impoverished Russia in control of Russian speaking territories and it's kind of near abroad or, you know, Russia as a modern state. And the answer may be the former, uh, even though that seems bizarre to a lot of outside observers. I do think we need to talk about Europe uh, before we move on to our next topic, because what we're seeing in Europe is dramatic. Um, it's an upending of a security order status quo that's kind of been in place through most of the post-war period, where we're seeing a few European governments, particularly Germany, really showing a sign of stepping up and potentially flipping their certain presumptions about how they engage with the world, and particularly how they engage with their own military force and uh, ability to engage in military operations overseas. Particularly, we've seen the German government now get on board with shipping arms to the Ukrainians. That's something that they had said previously they would never do because of their crimes during World War II. We've talked, seen a lot of support discussion in European capitals about the need to increase defense capabilities, increase internal coordination in ways that aren't strictly reliant upon the United States. The United States actually tried to encourage them to do so. President Trump was actually very lean forward on this. Uh, some might say to his credit, although one can question his tactics on it in doing so, to try and push them to build a more autonomous military capability. And there, this seems to provide the impetus to finally do that. And then we're also seeing a lot of uh, signs of Europe 
Pian's really trying to show very strong symbolic support to the Ukraine and Zelensky government, whether it's the fact that they are voting to admit them into the EU as we speak, you know, in ways I don't know exactly what that's going to look like or how it works, but we've seen favorable views and moves in that direction. Zelensky sign or a, a kind of petition for membership. We've seen the the ban on SWIFT transfers to Russian banks, which frankly probably did not have actually that big a difference in terms of actual effect because those banks were already all subject to sanctions, so you can't deal with them anyway. But significant because the Europeans control the SWIFT system, so it's a big way for the Europeans to signal, hey, we're doing this for you guys. But there are limits to this, and this is what's really interesting. So I think this rolled back jet sale that appears to have been the European Union saying we're going to give a bunch of jets to the Ukrainians and then balked on that today is a sign of that. Uh, Because a big question that came to NATO and the Polish government was, are you going to let them use these planes? And on top of that, are you going to let them use NATO air bases in Poland to actually launch them from? Because Ukraine's air support system has been wrecked and is going to be wrecked by the Russians to the extent it hasn't been already. And that appears to be part of what caused some them to bulk to some extent. Um, I suspect in part that has to do it because at that point, there is a much more colorable argument that you are crediting the line of what makes you a belligerent in this conflict, um, you know, would subject you to targeting if you use your, your territory to be able to launch military attacks against uh, another army. Now, there's already lots of gray area where the Russians could say, well, look, you're, you're, you're giving arms, you're doing all these direct support. A lot of Western governments would say that's allowed. Russia might well say they're not. And there's lots of, you know, gray area both parties are working in here, but that appears to have hit their their limit of tolerance for the moment in this conflict. Um, and I suspect that has to do with why that broke down and the fact that the governments that have these Russian-made jets probably don't want to give them up uh, in part because it could be hard to get pieces for them when you're fighting with Russia. And so the supply line to actually replace them and to supply them and arm them is probably going to get diminished, uh, I suspe- suspect, although I, I'm not an expert, so I may have missed part of this. But it's really a transformational moment in Europe. I'd be curious for you guys if you have a sense of whether you think this is going to be sustained momentum moving forward and, and also like whether we're sure it's a good thing because particularly Germany reawaking as a military power is something that Europeans have lived in terror of in many ways for a, not, you know, a couple of the last few centuries in various different ways. Is this inherently a good thing or are there reasons why 50 years from now we may be saying, wow, this was maybe a step in a bad direction? Look, it, it, if this all ends in World War III, then it was a bad thing all along. But, but I, you know, in terms of Germany reawaking as a military power, I mean, I feel similarly about that as I do about Japan reawakening as a military power. And an interesting feature we haven't talked about and maybe don't have to talk, talk about is just the, the broader beyond European impacts of this, right? How it impacts how people think about China and Japan's some discussions about whether Japan should have a nuclear force I and mean, all, 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 all of this sort of stuff. I mean, look. Countries obviously have historical legacies and they have to own up to those historical legacies, but they're not bound by them. The his- history is not destiny, you know, and, and so I, I don't think it's it's appropriate to say, you know, because of German actions in World War II, uh, therefore, you know, the state of Germany, no matter how much it changes, no matter you know who the people are, uh, now must be a fundamentally demilitarized uh, country, right? Same, same with Japan. You know, if you look at the broad scope of human history, um, cu- countries go through cycles. You know, sometimes they're aggressors, sometimes the victims, sometimes they're uh, the you know bulwarks of of stability in in the region, right? I remember a, f- a few years ago during the Trump administration when it occurred to me that Germany was the leader of the free world, which was an interesting thing that had not occurred to me would happen, but there it was, and that was okay at the time. So, I mean, look. Uh, history is back. It has returned. It has returned to Europe. It has returned, you know, to Asia. Maybe never left, 
there's no alternative but for the Europeans to stand up and recognize this fact. Uh, and, uh, you know, maybe it was appropriate for two generations, um, given the horrors of World War II, to want to take a more pacific posture. Um, but at some point, um, you know, you have to accept that you were born into the world you're born into. And if that means that that Germany becomes, you know, the European military superpower or Germany plus France or, you know, however the European uh, arrangement works, um, I'm, I think that's inevitable and uh, fundamentally a, a good thing. It's too bad. It's going to cost tens of thousands of Ukrainian lives to make that happen. Um, but these are the things that, you know, hi- history takes a lot to move. Yeah, I think that, you know, there's a a route that I can see where down the road, this sort of regrouping of Europe and revitalization, one might say, um, of sort of a, a united Europe in the face of Russian aggression leads to something good, leads to a stronger international order, leads to renewed appreciation for liberal democracy, leads to, you know, increased interest in renewable energy across Europe rather than, you know, reliance on gas from the Nord Stream pipelines. But there's also a world in which it leads to, you know, increased rearmament, an increasingly isolated Russia and, you know, a new Cold War. So I can see it going down either one of those pathways. I think there's, you know, there are certainly signs of hope, but I'm also extremely nervous and there's really no way to know. Well, guys, let's go from talking about the rest of the world to talking about how how we, the United States, engage with the rest of the world and how the rest of the world engage with our domestic politics. Because, of course, an event as big as the war in Ukraine can't help but have ramifications here at home. And the old adage that, you know, politics used to end at the water's edge has really not been true for a while now. But if you ever had any doubt that it's dead, it, it has been the reaction of the last week to this conflict. The Republican Party, it, it's worth noting, has kind of seemed to break into three different approaches on this, depending on you know where they fall politically. There is one branch, it's kind of like the Mitt Romney branch, that's saying, look, we're going to focus on criticizing Putin and we're not going to criticize the Biden administration because, frankly, Biden administration is kind of on the policy bent that everybody seems to agree with, uh, which is that there's not much appetite for military intervention, but people want to do everything but military intervention to try and deter the Russians. Then you have a middle camp that's kind of like the least Stefanik camp, just because she's the one who came out with one of the early and most clear statements along these lines saying this is really President Biden's fault because he's weak without really explaining why or how or what he should be doing differently. Um, But then also saying, well, but Putin's also a monster. So maybe he gets a little blame in this as well, trying to split the baby and have it both ways. And then you have this exceptional other wing, which is associated with the Trumpy wing, although I think it's worth noting, it's actually even like the right, politically right side or uh, extreme side of the Trumpy wing of the Republican Party of people saying things that are sympathetic with Putin or understanding. Uh, we had former President Trump compliment him, say this is kind of a smart move on his part. You know, that stops a little short about, about saying, oh, I'm glad he did it. Um, but it's still nonetheless a, a, a weird thing to say about Vladimir Putin in this particular moment. But you had other people actually who have actively said, you know, we support what Putin is doing. We understand. We think Putin really was under threat from Western countries. Tucker Carlson on Fox News Network has said things that get really close to this. Um, we saw uh, a number, Marjorie uh, Taylor Greene and... 
who was uh, Paul Gozar, I believe it was, speaking at a conference just this past week where Marjorie Taylor Greene was introduced by someone who led a chant for Putin, 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 Putin before bringing her on stage because there's this element of this extreme political right that views Putin as a white Christian leader as a kind of implausible as that is, uh, and this being part of a strategy to preserve, you know, it's Russia as some sort of white Christian nation. It's really an exceptionally weird moment to see these elements of American politics coming on. And I want to know what we should be making of it. Al, let me hand it over to you. I know you've been doing a lot of thinking about this. Yeah. So, I mean, there's obviously a lot to say about the Republican Party, but I, I, for me, what's been most striking about this is just thinking through the counterfactual, which is kind of so horrifying that I try not to, but I, I can't help, of what if Trump was the president right now, uh, which of course, you know, we were pretty close to. Uh, and I don't even mean like a coup on January 6th. I just mean like Biden didn't win by all that much, right? Trump could easily have been president right now. And it's such a horrifying thought because of a combination of, on the one hand, Trump's weird love of authoritarians. I mean, this really puts into even starker relief, um, his phone call with President Zelensky uh, when he seemed to threaten to withhold uh, the the Javelin uh, uh, missiles, which are such an important part of Ukraine's response right now, uh, so that Zelensky would help look into uh, Hunter Biden and all of that, right? You know, we know the scandal that obviously led to his first uh, impeachment. Uh, so you have kind of the, the weakness, the disloyalty to America, uh, you know, the inability to put the national interest above his own interests, and on the other hand, you just have the er, just erratic nature of Trump's leadership. You know, we haven't, you know, we've kind of obliquely referenced Putin putting his forces on higher nuclear alert. And, you know, I think the Biden administration has dealt with that really appropriately, which is kind of to ignore it, right? Just to say, this is just weird bullying. We're not going to do anything about this. It's not necessary. We're not going to bite on this uh, kind of uh, attempt to escalate. Can, I have no idea what Trump would have done, right? One can imagine this crazy vacillation. Um, not only that, but I suspect Trump would have not wanted to take responsibility for any of this. And you would have had total confusion in the White House and in the military uh, as to what the actual orders from the top were. All of this is to say that um, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, I think, forces us to reckon in a way that even at the worst of the Trump administration, we were not really realized, forced to, to think about that in the American constitutional system, both as a result of its design and also just a result of its historical evolution and also as a result of the practicalities of military and foreign affairs, the president has an unbelievable amount of de facto unreviewable power. And because of that, in a way that does not apply in domestic affairs, right, that you know, did not apply even in the biggest crisis of the Trump administration, which was the, the you know, COVID pandemic, that the personal qualities of the president, right, the president's personal characteristics, the president's right, loyalty, judgment, honesty, prudence, all of these things are so important. And so, you know, those of us who were horrified by Trump's actions and who thought Trump posed a kind of fundamental threat to American constitutional democracy, we didn't even have to confront the worst of it, um, which is what I think the Ukraine invasion is forcing us to consider. And the fact that Trump still remains overwhelmingly popular among Republicans, the fact that Trump uh, at the CPAC recently seemed to signal that maybe he's running again in 2024, the fact that if he does, he is the odds-on favorite to become uh, the Republican nominee, and that because of the nature of polarized American politics, every presidential election is basically a 50-50 coin toss between the Republicans and the Democrats in the long term, right? Therefore, that Trump could be president in 2024, even given all that we know. That to me is 
is, is it's a horrifying statement of the tension between how our constitution currently operates and the democratic and social preconditions for that operation. And it makes me just much more freaked out than, you know, I was even during the Trump administration when I was deeply freaked out uh, all the time. I don't have anything optimistic to say about that. Uh, but that to me has been something that I think people have not fully appreciated. Uh, I think because, frankly, no one wants to think about what the situation would be like if Trump, rather than Joe Biden, or frankly, any halfway normal president was in the office, was in the White House. I think that's I think that's basically right. I mean, I do think it is interesting how some people on the right who had previously embraced Putin are backing away and some are not. Um, I mean, this isn't U.S., this is France, but I saw a story about how uh, Marine Le Pen, the far-right uh, leader in France, is going to have to reprint an enormous amount of campaign brochures because she put together a whole package that uh, highlighted her shaking hands with Putin. Uh, so those have to go in the trash now. I do think that that is interesting and, and maybe hopeful. I, I don't know enough about French politics to say. On the other hand, in the United States, you know, as you kind of hinted, Scott, there's been a, a long sort of growing alliance between Russia and the U.S. far right precisely because of Putin's increasing presentation of Russia as kind of a white ethno state with a, a strong theocratic bent sort of roping in the Russian Orthodox Church. Um, and so I think we're we're kind of seeing that play out now in the, the lasting appeal that that has on the right. On the other hand, I do wonder whether the longer this goes on, the more difficult it is to kind of shoehorn into American political categories. I mean, you you see people kind of struggling. So, for example, there are uh, some uh, high-profile Republican had a bizarre tweet about how, you know, this is what happens when you put your pronouns in your bio or something like that, which is just like what are you talking about? It's just this it's weird. Effort, it's just this effort to shoehorn American political fights into a conflict that actually doesn't have very much to do with those internal American political fights. And so I do wonder, the longer this goes on, the more it becomes obvious that, you know, Putin is slaughtering people um, and slaughtering people, you know, who also have their own claims to to make about, you know, their, their own nationhood. I just wonder whether it, it gets complicated and people on the right start kind of backing away when it no longer fits into easy categories. I think that I think that's right. And I think we're already seeing steps in that direction. And I suspect they will continue so long as this conflict continues. And we'll see how long that is, but it looks likely to be a, a while. Um, it is that I think there may be a decoupling of those far right views from this weird Russia obsession they've had for a few years or the marginalization of those people who don't decouple those two things. You know, we'll we'll have to see exactly, but there is enough of a popular reaction against Putin. I mean, the actions against Putin, Biden's numbers have not improved markedly, despite his, I think, fairly adept handling of this. But uh, the general support for the actual policies they're pursuing are very high in like 70 percentile range. Uh, and that includes a good number of Republicans. And so, you know, I don't think you're going to see people who are on this far right cast insofar as they're trying, going to try and win elections, try and win primaries 
talking a lot about their ties to Putin because I just don't think it's going to have sway. And that actually can be significant um, because, frankly, like, you know, Putin has been a source of and Russia more generally of, of weird international ties of like kind of motivating some of these groups. You've got like, you know, the Maria Putina's kind of like integrating with various aspects of the American political right. Making those more difficult, I think, is probably a good thing. I don't know how big difference it makes in the end, but I think it probably is still a good thing and it's likely to to hopefully divorce that a little bit. The thing we might see here, frankly, is like this may make it easier for the Biden administration to attack a lot of those ties. There are legal mechanisms in place, particularly when they touch on like white nationalist violence, which there are reasons to think these have gotten very close to each other that the Biden administration could pursue, usually would hesitate to do for domestic political and legal reasons. But this may push it over the edge and frankly may make it a lot less politically controversial. Um, So I wouldn't be shocked if we see that a little bit further down the road. I want to talk about Biden a little bit. What is this going to mean for Biden? I think it's a little dismaying. If you look at Biden's approval numbers, he basically was in the kind of honeymoon period up and through Afghanistan in August, then collapsed precipitously in his approval ratings, and now is hovering around 40%. Not like a terminal level. That's where Barack Obama was at this point of his first term, more or less, uh, nonetheless came back to win re-election, but nonetheless has not seen it really budge. And I think Biden has handled the Russia crisis about as well as he can. I think he properly calculated we cannot credibly threaten military intervention in this case because I don't think either domestically it will sell or with European allies. And I think there's space to criticize him there. You know, maybe that would have been a difference maker in deterring Russia, but I just don't think I think he probably properly judged it wouldn't have been particularly credible to be able to do that because there just wasn't appetite for it in the necessary audiences of support domestically. It would have just balkanized this coalition. Instead, they put that off the table and have done an incredibly good job building this bigger coalition around non-military measures. It hasn't worked yet, but it's not clear what else they could have done. Is this something that's going to, we're going to hear Biden in the State of the Union that he's giving tonight play up? Is it going to help perceptions of his leadership or or is it going to be a non-factor or potentially even hurt them more? Yeah, so it's an interesting question. And I also, like you, have been surprised to see Biden's approval rating not increase, um, given A, that he has, I think, by all objective measures, handled this very, very well. And so a lot of the concerns around uh, his foreign policy handling and the handling of his team around uh, you know, the withdrawal of Afghanistan, um, which obviously is a complicated issue and there are many sides to it, but I think we can all agree did not go uh, as well as it could have. Um, I think a lot of that can be put to rest given how kind of masterfully this has been handled so far. Now, right, it could go off the rails very quickly, frankly, in ways that are just outside of Biden's control. Like he's just not the most important world leader uh, in dealing with this uh, crisis for obvious reasons. Um, but so far, it's been really impressive. And it has struck me that uh, that is not, we haven't seen that in, in the poll numbers. I think there are two reasons, though, to be cautious about drawing too much from that. First is we need to see, you know, in the next few days, in the next few weeks, um, we might see, uh, increase there, right? As people both get increasingly scared uh, of the foreign of, of the kind of international situation, uh, which usually leads to a boost for the in- incumbent uh, president, uh, and as they hopefully appreciate that Biden is handling this about as well as could be uh, expected. Um, but the other reason why I wouldn't overread too much the poll numbers is, you know, it seems that we have entered and this is not a recent thing, but let's say in the last ten years, into a kind of a new era of American politics in which. 
voter behavior and voter perceptions are driven much, much more by what's called a, a negative polarization, right? The, the voters are motivated much more by their dislike of the other team than they are of like for their own team, right? Like Democrats mostly just dislike Republicans more than they like Democrats and vice versa. So what you may see is that although Biden's approval ratings don't increase because that would require people who don't like him to say that they like him, right? What ends up happening is that the other sides, right, the Republicans' approval decreases even more, either because um, they're not viewed as terribly competent or because there's this intra-Republican split and like large parts of the Republican Party appear to be holding water for Vladimir Putin. So in the end, you know, this might still strengthen Biden's political hand and the political hand of the Democrats, even if you don't see that reflected in in the, the, the poll numbers. But at the end of the day, I mean, I do agree with you, Scott. It is still striking that his numbers have not increased. Um, and I do think that is fundamentally kind of an indication that we are and we remain a very polarized country in which even foreign policy uh, no longer can bring us uh, together in the way that it, it used to. Not that it ever did perfectly, but it certainly did more than it does now. Well, unfortunately, we are about at the end of our time, if not past the end of our time. Um, but even though this is a special edition of Rational Security 2.0, that doesn't mean we are going to abandon our usual practice of leaving you with object lessons to think about for the rest of the week. Alan, let me hand over to you to share your first object lesson. So my family actually is from the Soviet Union. Uh, they were a part of the generation of Soviet Jews that emigrated in the late 70s and, and early 80s. Uh, so I've grown up very much within uh, you know, Soviet culture and, and Russian culture. And you know, one thing that I've noticed is you know, as I've grown older, I've realized more and more how much of my heritage is actually within Ukraine itself, uh, something that a lot of folks who, uh, you know, have, who have, have relatives that come from the Soviet Union and Russia uh, increasingly realize. My grandmother was born in the Ukraine, for example. And a lot of the foods that I grew up eating, uh, which I always thought of just as Russian foods, because uh, Russia obviously is the kind of dominant nation uh, and, and the dominant culture in that in that region, uh, actually uh, come from uh, Ukraine. Uh, none more so than uh, um, than borscht, right? The famous beet soup uh, that uh, lots of folks eat, and, and that I think is particularly good in its cold form, and that I grew up eating and enjoying uh, very much. So my object lesson is uh, a version of the great Ukrainian uh, dish of uh, cold borscht. Uh, which I'm including in in the uh, the show notes, uh, and it's just an indication that uh, the you know the ties, the cultural ties between Russia and the Ukraine are uh, are quite deep, right? Something that you know, Putin has cited in arguing that you know Ukraine's not a real country, which obviously is is not true, but that the close ties that very much uh, is is true, and so it's worth reflecting on how much of what we think of as uh, Russian culture, much of it actually comes from the Ukraine. Quinta, what's your object lesson for this week? So we've talked a lot about Putin this episode and with with uh, a lot of reason, but I want to recommend a book by Tony Wood that came out in 2018 that is called Russia Without Putin. I read it a few years ago and picked it up over the last few days since Russia has been in the news. Um, and I think it's just a really interesting, provocative, thoughtful look at sort of where Putin's style of governance comes from and how Wood argues it is actually quite in line with the Yeltsin government that came before him and what that means about what kind of a country modern Russia is and where it might be going. So highly recommended. For my object lesson this week, uh, you know, I want to bring us back to some of 
the discussions around the media coverage of the crisis in Ukraine, because an underlying element of it that we didn't have time to talk about, but I think it's worth flagging, is this phenomenal degree of racial and cultural bias that has manifested in all sorts of different aspects of that coverage. And I think it's been really striking. Um, I, I've found it striking, even though I'm I am you know a, a white Christian, nominally Christian <laughs> guy as somebody who studies the Middle East and have watched a lot of media coverage of conflict in the Middle East throughout a lot of my career and engaged with it fairly closely, just how different the approach is to a lot of the scenes and the framing. And it's really shocking and disheartening. You know, that's not to take any away, anything away from the immense sympathy that Ukrainians should have and are entitled to, but it's, a, I think, a kind of a collective failing of a lot of Western media, European and American, that a lot of that same sympathy um, hasn't been extended to a lot of other world populations, um, and I'll note particularly those in the Middle East, uh, Muslim population in the Middle East and parts of Europe, that one would hope to be there. I, I thought there was a good op-ed on this uh, by H.A. Hellyer, who's a fellow at the Carnegie Endowment, as well as, I think, a professor in, uh, in other capacities. He, he's written a lot about um, kind of the Muslim experience in Europe and political dynamics there. But he had an interesting op-ed in the Washington Post that covered this, and so I'm going to make that my object lesson. Uh, I will not quote the very long, uh, annoying title, but I'll put a link in the article. And I think it's worth reading the article and also clicking on some of the examples that the Post has pulled together, or some of this coverage and the way it's being framed. And to uh, bear that in mind as we listen to this and as we encounter the next conflict or future conflicts, to try and ask for more of our media coverage and break through those sorts of mindsets so that we can extend the same empathy to people living through those conflicts uh, that were extended to the Ukrainians today. All right, folks. Well, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. It has been a long and sober episode of Rational Security, uh, but I think it is one warranted by the particular moment. We will be back next week. We will be in lighter spirits, we promise. We will not do this special edition every week, um, so long as this crisis proceeds. But we did want to take a moment uh, and give it the gravity it deserves. But until then, bear in mind that Rational Security 2.0 is, like its forebearer, a production of Lawfare. You can still find our show page at lawfareblog.com, where you'll find liner notes for this episode, including links to the articles and object lessons we've discussed. Also, be sure to check out our written content at lawfareblog.com, as well as some of our other podcasts. We have a daily podcast, Lawfare Podcast, where you will hear some phenomenal coverage of the crisis in Ukraine, among other national security topics, uh, as well as a long-form podcast, Chatter, that does long interviews with people working in or adjacent to national security. Uh, we have a new feed of Quinta's other podcast, Arbiters of Truth, focusing on disinformation topics. And we have a number of Lawfare Presents limited series, the most recent of which is The Aftermath, examining the response to the January 6th insurrection. You can also purchase Rational Security Swag at lawfarestore.com, actually thelawfarestore.com, or go to patreon.com slash lawfare to become a material supporter of Lawfare for ad-free podcast feeds and other special benefits, including a committed ad-free feed for this podcast. Please do follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. And whenever and wherever you download this podcast, please be sure to leave a rating and review or hit that share button and pass it to your friends and loved ones. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Hamza Shatu of Goat Rodeo. And our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. We are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Pacha Howell. On behalf of my co-hosts, Alan and Quinta, I am Scott R. Anderson. We will talk to you next week. Till then, goodbye. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 